first there was this trouble between me and you. You and me? No, not you. You. I am you. You and me? No, I am you. Stop saying that. Make him stop saying that. Don't touch me, I'm a doctor. Have what? Music. Can you fix a hi-fi? No, sir. Then shut up. What is this called? It's called a microphone stand. Yeah. I don't have a lot of experience with these things. You've never used a microphone stand? No. So it, it's confusing to me. When you perform, you use the Kate Bush headset? <laughs> if you see some early live trio stuff, he has a uh, contact mic on his neck. So the, the parts like where he says, I love you, you love me, I don't love you, you know, that has that weird like kind of man-in-a-box sound. Vocoder? It's not a vocoder. It's like a military communication microphone. And so it's a microphone that sits on your neck and picks up your voice through that. And so it sounds... It's like in Catch-22, they have yeah, those. Yeah. Well, all microphones will do that, right? If I do... <laughs> not very well, though. Yeah, Can it's, you hear it? It's got to be a contact mic, I think. Kind of like how... How do I look? Do I look like Chucky? <laughs> you are Sitting kind of... here against the wall? Do you, you would... Is it comfortable for you to sit like that? It is, kind of. Okay. As long as it's comfortable... For you to sit upright like a... Take a picture of me, Jim. <laughs> like a ventriloquist dummy. Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast about films that we think that not many people know about, but we think are great films. I am Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. <laughs> and I'm Rick Rewound. Is that what we fell on? Found Jim last time? Mm -hmm. I, I just think I changed it. A contrarian. <laughs> I thought it sounded better. <laughs> Already trouble. Today's episode was about the film What's Up Doc. And uh, before we get into What's Up Doc, I had some housekeeping items I wanted to go over. If, oh my gosh. If you'll okay. remember from last episode, I was chided by uh, Found Jim and Rick Rewound for not having seen the original, The Taking of Pelham 123. So I, I watched that. I thought it was about as good as the remake. <laughs> oh man. Remake's not bad. Oh, yeah. I guess I'll have to watch the remake. Who's in the remake? John Travolta, a hero of mine, is a young Italian boy. Uh -huh. And a very, a, a man I think is extremely handsome. Maybe I'm just the one who thinks about this. Denzel Washington. I think a lot of people think Denzel Washington is that's, handsome. You don't think that's a hot take? No. Denzel <laughs> Washington so. no, is good looking? Think, yeah. I think that's a common... I've also, I thought it might be fun to make an inventory of the films that I've seen since our last episode... And so here they are, Flues Brothers mm. on the big screen, which was a revelation. I've never seen it that way before. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, both in 70 and 35 millimeter. Oh, it came out in 70 millimeter? It did, but it's just a blown up blown version up, yeah, yeah. Of, the, um, of the digital print, I think, because the 35 millimeter had artifacts, which was cool. Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, Drop Dead Fred, mm. Miami Vice, Enter the Dragon on the big screen, Hobbs and Shaw, <laughs> Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, Ugh. Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, the Zach Efron Ted Bundy movie, Collateral. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just saw somebody mention that that was a, that, I mean, I, I saw that when it came out. I, I don't think I saw, maybe I saw Collateral in the theater, but I need to watch that again. That was like one of Michael Mann's Michael first. Mann digital movies right it's yeah. shot on digital right yeah because miami vice came out right after that yeah and i didn't realize how great a film miami vice was <laughs> it was panned when it came out that I, yeah i didn't watch i don't think i've seen the movie miami vice proof of life what's that now why russell crowe meg ryan it was directed by the guy who did predator and die hard okay Decent film, kind of fun. Bringing up baby, of course, in preparation for today's film, and abducted in plain sight, <laughs> which was a real roller coaster ride. How about you, Rick? What, what films have you seen since our last episode? I did go through, similar to you, 
both Jim and I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with my offspring, who's now 15, and so we're going through. And I think you said that, Chris, right? You're going through with your offspring. Tarantino. Tarantino. Oeuvre. But I only watched Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction and begrudgingly Kill Bill 2. My wife watched Kill Bill 1 and 2 with him, and I did not. See, I, 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 he already loses me by Kill Bill. As we'll discover in this podcast series, I love Peck and Paw. And oh, the, yeah. the Kill Bill films are huge nods to Peck and Paw. Let me ask you, are you going to show him true romance? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I feel like I need to watch that again, so maybe. It's a, my son insisted on seeing it. So we're watching, we, he saw Once Upon a Time in America, or Hollywood, sorry. And, sorry um, did I say America too? I, I feel like I did. Yeah, I think we did. But then we watched Reservoir Dogs. He loved it. So now we're going to start watching the rest in order. But the next one would be True Romance, if you were to go by the his universe, right? Because True Romance is in the Reservoir Dogs universe. And that's with Roger Avery, right? So I have the I have a whole Roger Avery thing where I definitely feel like Tarantino was better with Roger Avery. Yeah, because it was him taking Avery off the script of Pulp Fiction. Is that right? That guy, he's, or was it Avery's Reservoir Dogs? credited on Pulp Fiction. He's not credited on Reservoir Dogs, I think. Something was the fallout. He took his name off of something. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Pulp... This is, this is like a Quentin Tarantino film. I right, think. yeah. And so Roger Avery felt like he was giving too much good material to Quentin Tarantino and not getting credit for it. Yeah. Which is, seems true, I think. I think there's a pattern. But you're, I, you're I, a big Avery guy. <laughs> I'm not a big Avery guy. I don't think his, his films are better alone either. Killing Zoe is good. Oh, I've seen that movie. Yeah. And Killing Zoe is especially good if you realize that I think he wrote it in a week because basically he found out that somebody had a bank that he could film in for a couple of weeks. And so he wrote the script to film in the bank. Huh. So the, the location came before the script. Who is in that? Is that another? Uh, uh, Eric Stoltz. Oh. And a French guy. The professional? The, <laughs> no, 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 not him. A younger guy who's... He, I've seen him in other stuff, but I can't remember. And a f the French lady, <laughs> one of the French actresses. How many of them from, are there, there, really? But from that era, there's... She, she's like a director, too, right? Right, yeah. Completely What's, forgotten her name. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> the only it's name I can remember time. is... Yeah, yeah it's it 25 years ago. Yeah. 20, I saw that. Oh, everybody remembers Uma Thurman's name. <laughs> so maybe Avery's not so... Not winning the race there. I'm just going to adjust my microphone for the whole podcast here because it just keeps, I just don't have it balanced. The weight's not working right. Sorry. You, you watched something else that I, I watched recently. Or oh, has... sorry. Yeah. I forgot to mention at the top of my list, The Gambler. Oh, right. Which uh, I, again, was chided on the last episode for not having seen because I had seen the Kenny Rogers version and not. And I will say The Gambler was an outstanding film. It reminded me a lot of The th of thief which of course james Cott was in both he's a powerful presence in any movie he yeah it's just just because they were james conn films with like a single title you know a role title but i then decided i shared with you both that i'm going to become a college professor and uh and play craps because i'm really good at craps i won three thousand dollars last time <laughs> rick is com rick is completely abandoned the mic stand now so this is position number three I'm continuing the, to sit on the floor like Chucky Doll. Stand up. Yeah. <laughs> Handheld. <laughs> Should we get up a brick wall? <laughs> exactly. The Gambler. Did we see something else? Well, we watched the... the I, d I saw the, something that was on your list, but you, you saw so many movies and kept track, I can't remember now. Drop Dead Fred? Did oh, I, that's what I was curious about. That's the one with Rick Mayall. I've never watched that. Rick Mayall mm. doesn't like the film, I guess. <laughs> He's, he didn't. He refused to do the sequel. Yeah. I thought he was great in it. I didn't, you know, I got the concept. I thought it worked, but but well, I think it was supposed to be his big break in America, and obviously that did not work. Hobbs and Shaw was that the other film you saw? <laughs> no, but my kid, my younger kid, is going through the Fast and Furious movies that are on available on whatever streaming service they're on, and it was so amazing. Too Fast, Too Furious. I walk in, and there's a scene. Who's the guy who played like Dexter's father, and then was in the cop in uh, Drugstore Cowboy? He's this. Great character actor, James something. I can't remember, but there's like the the guy who died, right, recently. But in this film, I've never seen any of these films, but he's he wins a race. And then the cops come and start chasing him. And then this guy, the Dexter, Dorkster cowboy uh, actor, pulls up, like is standing by the side of the road by his police car. And he shoots what looks like a grappling hook 
at the car, but it, it doesn't have a cable connected to it. It's just like this claw that embeds itself in the car and electrocutes the car and makes him so that he gets caught by the police. Right. It was amazing. It's like a pipe, an electrified pipe. Is that what it was? shoot it into the engine block and they roast the engine block. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I, I can't watch anymore. This is the, the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. But then, yeah, and then I started explaining what was going to happen because then they bring in the, the hero into the police station. They start showing him this terrorist guy or something. And I say, okay, what's going to happen is, is they're going to say, to keep him out of jail, he's going to have to go and do some kind of driving for the police or the FBI or the CIA in order to keep himself out of jail. And and my son got mad at me and I had to leave. <laughs> I actually love that whole series. The first one, though, infuriated me because it's a total ripoff of Point Break. Mm. It's ex- the exact same film, just using cars instead of surfboards. <laughs> but it's, it's identical, absolutely identical film. And I, that made me mad because I'm a big Catherine Bigelow fan. Hmm. Interesting. Point Break, I remember that movie because my parents went to see it with friends of theirs because Siskel and Ebert said it was good. It and, was good. And they came really back good. and they were really upset. I think it might have been one of the last times they went to see a movie in a theater because <laughs> they it didn't was like, like Point Break. It was like, what? <laughs> that, w- that was an awful movie. And I've, I've, I, I just, I've, I've seen bits and pieces. I can't. I guess I your parents are misogynists. <laughs> a Near, woman director can't, you know. Right. I've, I've actually had an online conversation with someone. They actually mentioned the Catherine Bigelow effect, which actually this was my Once Upon a Time in America, or not in America, in, in Hollywood complaint. Jim and I, when we saw the, the film, all the movies, the previews were women criminals, women murderers kind of movies. Yeah. And kind of like they were just like men. Right. <laughs> like the, it's like, well doing i don't know yeah we're gonna let move women direct movies now this woman is going to direct a martin scorsese movie except the women are all going to be shooting people in the head as opposed right. to men right you know it's not and that's what the uh somebody online called the Catherine bigelow effect it's like oh she's she's an okay woman director because she directs movies that are man movies well <laughs> i mean so Catherine Bigelow doesn't do what you just described. She doesn't put women in men roles. No, she, she doesn't. She does bromance films. Right. And then she, and actually, you know, she does a great job, obviously, with women characters, like in Near Dark. I, I like Near, Near Dark. Dark. Yeah, the woman yeah. in that's fantastic, very well-rounded. And then Zero Dark Thirty, which my daughter and I absolutely love. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I have, and I, I seem to remember it was okay. And What's-Her-Name is very strong. I mean, she's yeah. the one who... Who solves the whole, who finds Osama Bin Laden. Yeah. So, you're not a Bigelow fan, huh? Have you seen Detroit? I haven't seen Detroit. I need to watch it. It's a really good movie. I'm okay with her. I'm just not, Point Break, I don't, I don't know. I I love Point Break. The original Point Break, right? The original Point Break. Yeah, not the remake. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get on you. Have you seen the remake? No, I'm going to watch watch both, and then I'm going to say... (laughs) couple episodes from now. Don't well, you dare. I watched the original Point Break and it doesn't seem much better than the uh, the remake. Don't Seems you dare. about the same. You know, one film I will say that about is Ghostbusters. The original Ghostbusters was shitty and the new Ghostbusters is shitty. It has nothing to do with gender. They're both average films, B-minus films in my mind. I don't know if Paul Feig, I'm not sure about his ability in, in film. I, I like his television productions. Spy was okay. Yeah, it was okay. Blues Brothers was unbelievable. Have you guys seen this film on the big screen, end to end? That was, I think that was the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. With Either, my, both with, of us saw. Oh my God. It, my when parents, it, yeah, we went to see that in, ni- whatever, 1980, was it? 81? 80, I think 80, it came yeah. out. When it opens yeah. up on that grainy night view of the Joliet, like, <laughs> smokestacks, mm-hmm. and then goes to the prison. I mean, so it's an art film. I'd argue it's incredibly beautifully shot. Frank Oz is in the first ten oh, minutes yeah. of the film. Yeah, he's the, and the, the guy end, in the. Is he at the end too? Or no, he's. Oh no, Steven Spielberg is the guy at the license office or whatever. They have to go. They go to the Chicago, the city hall or something. Mm-hmm. And Steven Spielberg, without a beard, is the guy when when all the yeah at city hall they have to get a license or something. The oh, guy that's eating a Spielberg? yeah without a beard. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't it's pretty know that. crazy. You have to watch that. But yeah, Frank Oz is the so guy at the at end. The, I think when they. No, isn't he at the He's end, the or? guy at the beginning at the jail gives giving him, his, him all, all his right, stuff. Right, right, his right, yeah. yeah. Right. Spielberg's at the end. Oz is at the beginning. But they both play kind of the same character, guys behind counters. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
amazing. I was blown away. My son was just, he, he, we've been taking it all. He actually told my wife, I've got such a burden now, mom. And she's like, what's your burden? It's like, I've been seeing all these great old films and I've got nobody to talk to <laughs> about. Like his friends, he's trying to go to school and tell them about the Blues Brothers. He's like, Aretha Franklin was in it. And his friends are just like, who's Aretha what? Franklin? Yeah. Oh, well. So My son it, it actually wanted to watch the Tarantino movie so he could talk to the Tarantino kids at school. So apparently there are some kids at school who know Tarantino stuff. Or it, it's a status thing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. But I don't know what movies that would be. I don't know if it's Pulp Fiction. Because that was the weird thing about Pulp Fiction was the $5 shake. Yeah. I remember I want to. Yeah. So, you know, she orders a $5 shake and then John Travolta's like, did you just pay $5 for a shake? And it's like, yeah. And I was like, I, can I taste a, f- I would just want to taste what a $5 shake is like. And, you know. Now you can get a $5 shake. Yeah. That's, that's like every shake is $5. In the Blues Brothers, we saw it at Alamo and they brought you beer and food throughout the movie to pair with the film. Mm. And the first thing they brought out was a salad because it says the fucking salad is $10. That's a <laughs> Shea Paul joke. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I kind of like that. Three orange whips? Orange whip? There was an orange, or- whip. orange whip was dessert. Orange whip? That was Three your orange whips? Yeah. It's an orange whip dessert. So speaking of goofball comedies, what, what, madcap comedies, Rick, since you chose this film, would you like to announce the film and do your synopsis? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, my synopsis is very short. The film we watched was What's Up, Doc? from 1972, I believe. And it concerns a musicologist, a millionaires, a government whistleblower, and a perennial college dropout check into a hotel with identical bags and madness ensues. There you go. That's what happened. So I guess I should initiate the conversation, though. So yeah, this is... Why did I choose this film? I love this film. I remember seeing this when I was a kid, and I feel like it's timeless. And every time I've watched it, I've enjoyed it as a child and as an adult. And so that's why I chose it. And I feel like people don't talk about it. When they talk about Peter Bogdanovich, they talk about The Last Picture Show and they talk about Paper Moon. And this is the movie in between those two films. And some people complain that it's derivative. It's, you know, too much stealing from other kind of 30s, wacky, madcap comedies. But Which they intended to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Peter Bogdanovich was, you know, of that generation. So we, you know, we talk about Tarantino, who obviously did that. He was like the video store clerk generation of directors, right? Where they're they're just swiping from everything, you know? And so you're basically watching everything on, you know, like the theme of the show, you know, you're watching everything on VHS or beta, if you had that. Right, if you had, if you're privileged enough to, yeah, to have a Betamax, and if you worked at a video store, you you could watch both. And so, if there's something that was exclusive on Beta, you could watch that in the video store. If you're a video store clerk, and so you just absorb all these films and mash them together. And and so, the film school generation, I think, like Peter, well, Peter Bogdanovich isn't quite the film school generation, but he is kind of the same age as like Lucas and who else am I thinking of? Carrie, stab, stab. <laughs> My memory is going. Carrie, Carrie. Nobody gets stabbed in Carrie. No, but the the director, uh, John Carpenter. No, not John Carpenter, but that yeah, John Carpenter. But oh, uh, Halloween. Wait, that's John Carpenter. No, too. no, Carrie and Blowout. Oh, oh my God! People are screaming. Body double. Body double. Yes. <laughs> Can we you. just name a film? Brian De Palma. Brian right, De Palma. right. Martin Scorsese actually, oddly enough, even though he's from that era, doesn't. I don't know what he's stealing from. If he's stealing from anything, he. Or he synthesized better so that you don't see what he's stealing from. I guess Spielberg's in the same way. He's more synthesized the films that he saw. Oh, and wait a minute. Spielberg completely ripped off from David Lean. David Lean, yeah. I so guess you're did, right. so yeah. did Lucas. The, all that. Lucas, yeah. So, anyways, these guys were like movie fiends, right? So, Bogdanovich was more like a, a journalist, right? Wrote about movies, a critic type person, but he was also a guy who just watched movies all the time. It was obsessed, interviewed, you know, famous directors, obviously Orson, you know, hung out with Orson Welles, Jerry Lewis. Like, what was, what's the story about Peter Bogdanovich and Jerry Lewis? Like, uh, Jerry Lewis's wife would give Peter Bogdanovich Jerry Lewis's old suits or something, like when he was a poor, broke kid. Like he, <laughs> like in his early 20s, he would wear like uh, Jerry Lewis's cast-offs. So he was like a, a guy who was obsessed about film, hung around directors and everything like that. So saw a huge number of films. And so all these guys. So Bogdanovich is one of those guys who saw all these classic films and then was trying to, you know, capture that in the 70s or synthesize what he saw and make films based around that. And he, so he's not much different than Tarantino, Tarantino in that the, way. Because the... I was about to say my perception of Bogdanovich was that he was a film historian 
who actually made a movie like Roger Ebert wrote one film, right? Like Roger Ebert is like a critic who then wrote one screenplay. I thought Bogdanovich was the same. I thought he just didn't do much. Like wasn't I didn't realize he was an avid productive filmmaker. I thought he was just like a guy who dabbled in making movies. But in truth, he was he was a he was a prolific director. Yeah, and he was this. I mean, he was he was big for a few years, and then he really blew it. And we can talk about that too. So that's that's what's really interesting to me. Again, it's kind of like talking about the Roger Avery Quentin Tarantino thing. Talking about what we can start talking about is the Peter Bogdanovich Polly Platt thing. So what's um, that? I don't know what that is. So Polly Platt was the production designer on this film. She was also Peter Bogdanovich's wife. They were married. She helped with Targets, the, his first movie with, uh, you know, this kind of B-movie. It's like Roger Corman. Right? Roger Corman, yeah. For Roger Corman. Or... Frankenstein. It's monsters in it. Boris Karloff. This is so bad. I can tell my memory's going because I can't, can't remember names like Boris Karloff, but she helped with the script on that. She's from Texas. She suggested The Last Picture Show as a book. Like, oh, you should check out this book by Larry McMurtry you should make this into a movie. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And then he made it into a movie, Last Picture Show. She was the production designer on that. She, production designer, worked, you know, was married to him when he made this film, What's Up, Doc? Paper Moon, same, same situation. Then he dumped her for Sybil Shepherd, And I would argue that Peter Bogdanovich hasn't made a good movie since then. <laughs> In a he's car? made interesting movies, and he's gotten gotten some. There was some a recent one, or maybe in the past ten or fifteen years, about the uh, the murder on uh, the boat that uh, yeah, William Randolph Hearst. Cats meow. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was gonna. I haven't watched that. I was that was pretty good. But Mask. I just watched Nickelodeon, which is a really strange movie that came out a couple years after Paper Moon. Yeah, John Carpenter did the same thing. He threw his wife. His wife was his like main producer and like a totally in control of the set and everything for him and then he dumped her for oh uh yeah in the films Catherine and adrian barbeau adrian barbeau yeah yeah but then his wife continued to his ex-wife continued to be his producer so that's the thing is if you're gonna dump your wife (laughs) keep her on as the producer marsha lucas the reason why star wars the first star wars film is good and the rest of them are not you heard me you can fight me on that uh, is because she basically made that movie in the, the cutting room. She was an editor and she edited that film. She actually left him. It, it was... Oh, she left him. Yeah, she actually was the one who jilted. So which George had, Lucas did. Which had a resonant impact on the film industry because he had to sell half his empire <laughs> to pay her and that's how Pixar became an independent entity. Did you oh, know really? that? I didn't know that that was part of the, the he, divorce lawsuit. Yeah. yeah, he sold Pixar to Jobs, and then he sold a bunch of things. And I know mm-hmm. that that's how Pixar broke. Well, they were the computer division of ILM, and he sold it to Jobs because Jobs wanted to sell their wanted to sell their rendering software. Mm-hmm. Right. And then as a to prove the strength of the rendering software, they started making films, and Pixar was born. So thank you for divorcing George Lucas. <laughs> Other stuff about Polly Platt. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Polly Platt. Cause, so she... Uh, was she a centerfold? No. She, she no, was Polly not, Platt she was is... not a Playboy centerfold? Nope. She, she oh. worked in, in Hollywood production and everything like that. So she recommended Last Picture Show. She told James Brooks, you know, the director. She worked... On, I think she was the producer on Ordinary People or one of those... James Brooks films. Oh, yeah. This is that. So she did production after. She told James Brooks, you got to check out this guy. He writes this comic called Life in Hell. This guy, Matt Groening, you should, you should hire him to do something for the Tracy Ullman show. She's... Really? Yeah. She's the one who had read Life in Hell, the comic strip, and so that's... She's partially responsible for The Simpsons. She also, being from Texas, she was a big fan of this short film by Wes Anderson called Bottle Rocket. Have you ever seen the original Bottle Rocket that he made in school with... Uh, no. It's, a, it's like a 10 or 15 minute film with uh, both Wilson brothers and it's basically a short version of the full length Bottle Rocket. So she, she produced, she saw that short film and said this is great and she got the money together to create, uh, to, to produce a full length version of Bottle Rocket. Another James Conn film. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's, she's kind of one of these unsung people and then so yeah, and, and to see, you know, you can just see the pattern is right after this, you know, the, her and Peter Bogdanovich separated and then his films, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a big nosedive 
So great. They just weren't popular, and they're not that great. Well, the ones I've seen, they haven't been that great. So behind every great director, there's a woman who's actually <laughs> doing his job for him. Right. Well, it's that idea, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in the collaborative idea of filmmaking, right? That auteur theory. These guys were obsessed with the auteur theory, right? Because all the, the French critics were, you know, talking about that, and Bogdanovich was, you know, Orson Welles crazy. He's, he's Bogdanovich is, have you seen, uh, what's the Orson Welles film that finally got finished? Another side of I just watched it. I can't remember the name wind of that in either. the title. Yeah, wind. The other side of the wind. <laughs> what is it called? I think it's something like that. Bogdanovich is in that, right? So he he's totally into the Orson Welles, you know, kind of auteur theory, but it's you know, the director is God thing. But I, I think it's obvious that there's a lot more to it than just the director, it's the team. Now I want to know when Coppola got divorced. Did he get divorced? No. No They're still together. Yeah. Coppola, I'm not sure what happened with him. Oh, he didn't get divorced, huh? No, they they almost, I mean, that's what's interesting about Hearts of Darkness is seeing how crazy it got. And then she, Eleanor, was directing the documentary. Right. So all that footage was her. I don't mean to correct you, Rick, but uh, Coppola did get divorced on December oh. 9th, 2003. Oh, really? Uh, okay. She divorced Spike Jones. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I know oh, wrong that. Coppola. Yeah, wrong Coppola. Whoops. That I know about. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, the other film I saw was... <laughs> <laughs> the other film I saw was a Sofia Coppola film, and was that the one that we? It, it's the one about the Chateau Marmont. It's really good. I forget what. Oh yeah, I, I haven't seen is. that. It's really good. I love Sofia Coppola and Catherine Bigelow. But you know, I'm just showing my. See, you guys hate Italians, and <laughs> I like Italians. So <laughs> what? <laughs> Both of these people are Italians. Oh okay. And you're on them. Let's see. What else we get? Jim, we skipped over your film. What have you seen oh, since? I, or do you not? Oh, we've already started talking about the movie, but we're, yeah, we didn't talk about, yeah, we, okay, so this goes it. back yeah, to. I just, I only saw the, I saw the Seagull's Laughter, which was an Icelandic <laughs> movie. Oh my gosh. That was, actually ties in because it is all women. It's actually all, the, it's pretty much all women in it, the main characters. There's a few extraneous men. They're very. The characters are very secondary, so it definitely ties into this what we've been talking about. But it was, yeah, it was great because because of that part partially, you know, it was like it's like Iceland in 1950. It's kind of like a weird. It's slightly reminding me of well, it's ironic. It reminded me of like Woody Allen, you know, radio days. It's kind of like hmm. that, but it's all from the, the women's perspective, and it's 1950 just after the war in Iceland, and this woman goes back to her hometown, this small town in Iceland, and it's kind of a comedy drama, and there's all kinds of, uh, well, she's really exotic because she's lived in America, and she uh, has come back and has all these dresses and things and is looking for a new husband and throws the town into turmoil. You know, it's this sleepy little town, but it's all character, really great characters, and it's like from 2001. Like the Wicker Man? Not, it's very... Yeah, I guess you could say, sure. Kind of like Wicker Man <laughs> meets local hero. Local hero? Right. Yeah, it's very... <laughs> reason why I came across it was because I was like, the director, a movie I just saw too, I guess, well, it was a, probably a couple months ago, it was a newer movie called uh, A Woman at War, which is another Icelandic movie. But the director of that is an actor in The Seagull's Laughter. So that just came across this movie because, oh, he's an actor. I just was looking him up and he he's an also, also an actor, but... Woman at War is good too. That's a newer movie. That's another Icelandic movie. But <laughs> so the Icelandic film industry has got to be about like ten or twelve people, right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, they're. I think they're definitely overlapping. It's like the characters. music industry and everything in Iceland is these tiny little groups of people yeah. working on each other's projects. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, direct flights have opened up between Kansas City and Iceland. Wow, so they're, they're like twenty dollars or. Yeah, a while like ago 20, I heard, heard it is twenty dollars. Yeah, we, we should fly over there and meet those people. They're probably at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> a guy I work with is going to going on a trip to Iceland next uh, next summer. Is he oh. is he driving to Kansas City and flying there? <laughs> no, I don't think so. He said there were three tiers of packages. There was the package where they do everything for you and take you on a trip with you know you, you're in like a tour group, and then there's the second one where they kind of get your car and where you're going to stay for you, but then you drive around by yourself, and then there's the one where you just go there and then you're on your own. And so they got the middle one because they didn't want to be stuck in Iceland with like ten strangers for a couple of weeks. <laughs> But again, I've, it's got to be a small place, right? To, it's yeah. not much. To, I've I've heard they're getting annoyed. Like they, you know, obviously they love tourists because it's definitely they need tourism. They're, but they're bored. But they they uh, <laughs> they uh, they're getting annoyed with 
are there what are they called the people on Instagram like taste makers? What are they called? The people who uh, taste makers. That's it. The Instagrammers who are you know have tons of followers and they're it's, it's something else though. You're right. Yeah, they're 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 <laughs> influencers. 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 Yeah, right. there you and go. So they're getting very annoyed with these people are going off off piste. They're going off trail and destroying it's a very fragile ecosystem and you're not supposed to wander around oh, off, like right. you're saying by yourself and they don't they're getting annoyed with these people like trying to get these great photos of themselves and they're just getting their by like them. renting four by fours and driving off across the you know tundra and destroying all this stuff and getting stuck and falling to, into crevasses or yeah, whatever they are yeah. the 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 seams with the steam in them right yeah so they're, yeah they're getting annoyed with the but tourists. They should tell those guys what how many followers they have, <laughs> and they won't be so annoyed. Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, wait, Jim, so you saw three films? I only saw one, really, I think. It was just The Seagull's Last... Well, I saw Once one, Upon Women a Time. At War that, yeah, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, then what media have you been consuming? Because you consume media more rapidly than anyone I, I know. It's like TV, more like weird... Not weird, thing, but just stuff on YouTube, obviously, but like uh, British television... I guess I haven't like British, task, uh, Taskmaster. You know, I've gotten through all of Taskmaster. That's a very popular. It's finally about, I think eight series. Now we Britain. can talk about it. There's an American version of it with uh, uh, you know, what's his name from who did the theme to uh, uh, comedy Bang Bang. Uh, we'll just name people by their Reggie, accomplishments. Uh, you know, Reggie Watts. Wow. Which I haven't watched. I haven't watched the American version, but the British, the original, is very funny. It's just this kind of. They get, uh, they do a whole season. The whole season is the same, like five comedians, and they have to do these ridiculous tasks. And it's just a contest. And they every week they they have to go through these. They're these filmed contests they do, or you know, and uh, is it scripted or is it a reality? No, show? it's reality. Oh. It's cool. Yeah. So yes, yeah. it's scripted. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> it's a scripted <laughs> reality show. Yeah, yeah, but it's entertaining. So. I watched all the most of those. My wife, she had a theory about you, Rick, in this film. Here we go. She says that you obviously like the manic pixie dream. Dream girl. Oh, I was going to bring that up if she didn't. Because she caught me watching Bringing Up Baby and was like, why the fuck are you watching? Who are you? She thought I was cheating on her because she's like, what woman is making you watch this? I said, I'm doing research for our podcast. And then I told her, you picked What's Up, Doc? And she says, that type is the Catherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby. She says, bub. And what's up, Doc? Maud and Harold and Maud. Holly mm. go lightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And she says, very interesting. Rose is totally like that. <laughs> would <laughs> well, let's would see, you uh, agree? Maybe, but I, I don't like it. So I watched Bringing Up Baby. After you mentioned you were watching Bringing Up Baby, I watched it again. I find Catherine Hepburn slightly irritating in that film. Not slightly. I don't like her. Barbara Streisand, who I don't particularly like, I do like her in this film. And so, but then, yeah, the, like, Breakfast at Tiffany's, I don't, I'm not into that. So it's, 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 I, I was trying to question the manic pixie, whatever that is. The, so you're saying a strong-headed, funny Jewish woman would not be an attractive <laughs> sure, thing sure. for you? I don't, Rick? I don't know if my type is Barbara Streisand, though. <laughs> I no. guess, yeah, no, no, I could see that. I was just calling out a stereotype. <laughs> Trying to make the pieces of the puzzle fit. My wife, I was watching uh, Bringing Up Baby, and I realized that my wife is a lot like Catherine Hepburn mm. in that movie. <laughs> but then I also had a, I took my son to see The Warriors. I, I have to bring it up once a, a podcast. Which I have to mention again, I have never seen. <laughs> oh, my God, you guys, you give me shit for not seeing Pelham. Who did Pelham I just again. read about? Where the Warriors was their favorite movie. Ah, oh, I should have made a note because why would you not make a note? Oh my God, it was somebody where it was like, oh, that's so obvious. But it, I, it, oh, so great film. And in it, I actually got. I, I took my son to see it in the theater. And then there's this scene where the the girl comes down. I forget what her name is, but she looks like my wife. She's built like my wife. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, it's like when something that obvious kind of hits you over the head. It's like when I was watching It's a Wonderful Life and was like, oh, this is where I got all my concepts of what a good person should be like. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, you do wonder if, if these things imprint on you when, uh, oh, oh, it was, it was Johnny Ramone. 
Johnny Ramone's favorite movie was The Warriors. That's what it was. I thought it was going to be some profound. <laughs> that is profound. Johnny, the guitar player, right, you know, well. who also voted for Nixon in 1972. He's a fascinating character. He voted for The Warriors. Yeah, well. he, was, he was a Republican for a lifetime Republican. Well, he probably died rich. He did. The domestic gross of this of What's Up Doc was $66 million. Oh, yeah, it was a hit. So this is the problem. Is this is not an obscure film. I think I feel like it's of its time. It was huge. Like certain people, certain age would remember it, right? Mm-hmm. When it came out, like adults. So somebody 20 years older than us, right? In fact, I've had conversations with, with a music professor <laughs> who loves the film and actually quoted, what are you a professor of? Musicology, can you, or music, what are you a doctor of? Music. And, and the judge says, can you fix a hi-fi? And, and he says, no. And he says, then shut up. That guy just loves that line. Thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. Well, I had never seen this film. I'd heard of it. I'd seen it on the, actually, oddly enough, I'd seen it on the rental movie shelves at Showtime. Yeah, and was a was gonna get around to it. That and Sob, I never got around to those two films, uh, but we always eyed them. Yeah, I thought it was a Woody Allen film. Clearly not. Yeah, and so it, it's, it definitely would. I don't know what people now, young people now, would think of, but twenty years ago, like it definitely in the eighties, it probably looked pretty unappealing, or it'd be just kind of square. Or just like, what is this? Or yeah, because Ryan O'Neill's fame. Definitely very specific couple of years. Barbara Streisand, but but as an actress, I don't think... And it's even, an old old-fashioned movie, right. or it's an imitation sort of of an old-fashioned kind of thing, so it's twice removed. It's not a, only... A, it's not an old-fashioned movie, but it's imitating one, so... Yeah, so it's kind of like the the same thing you were talking about, how your, your kid can't talk to anybody about the Blues Brothers, right? It's kind of like if you were a kid who watched a 3.30 movie, and so you'd see all these... 70s and 60s movies some of which we're we're watching now in this series right (laughs) but you like other kids maybe wouldn't be as into movies and and know that and be into it so i think that's probably where i found out about this film to me it feels like a 330 movie the kind of movie they would play after school before the news came on well four million dollar budget 66 million dollars that's a huge return yeah it was a hit are you basically telling me that this does not fall into the parameters? No, of- that doesn't. No. I mean, I don't. I mean, I think I, I consider it an esoteric film. I don't think people continue. It's, it's not like uh, the Maltese Falcon or something that resonates through time. I don't even yeah. think it's like bringing a baby where that film might resonate a bit more than What's Up Doc. So, this is the thing about What's Up Doc is, again, I can force my children to watch it and they watch it and they actually, the 15 the year old will begrudgingly watch it, but he's watched it so many times now since he was little, he'll watch it again or come down and watch it and he'll start laughing because he remembers certain things like, oh, I know what you mean. I hate it when anyone even goes near my igneous rocks, you know, (laughs) it's lines like that or use your charm, charm. And then he trips the woman, you know, stuff like that. Kids love, right? And so, but bringing a baby, I can't make my kids watch because it's black and white. And that's really the thing now is that like I find... I used to love watching black and white movies, but we had a black and white TV, right? So I didn't know the difference for a long time. And now I think it it would be impossible to get a kid. It feels like, at least in my family, in my environment, get a kid to watch a black and white movie voluntarily or even involuntarily. Like I haven't even been able to force my kids to watch black and white films. I lucked out because one day my son came to me and he said, Dad, you know how when you say you're going to take me to a movie and I tell you I don't want to go, he's like, always take me. I was like, okay, I'm going to remind you of this deal. So, like, I haul him off to black and white. You know, the funny thing about the black and white TV, I it's weird for me to see Belushi-era Saturday Night Live in color mm-hmm. because I just remember it all being black and white. It was all we had was a black and white TV mm-hmm. in 1977. I'm trying to remember the author who talks about, he wrote this whole article about the time David Bowie was Ziggy Stardust on Top of the Pops, how everybody in England talks about that moment when David Bowie showed up on Top of the Pops dressed as Ziggy Stardust and it was like a lightning bolt through the TV, and he talks about the colors and everything like that. And after he wrote the article, his dad said, we had a black and white TV. <laughs> Read the article and was like, you know we had a black and white TV. So his, it was the exact opposite. It was like his memory of it was full color, right? But they didn't have a color TV until the 80s. That's amazing. Yeah. That shows you how great as he was. Well, there were also magazines and probably photos, and so you just color in it. Maybe sure. that's probably what it was. Anyways, sorry. Did you do any research on the songs in this film? 
Jim. Not really. It, it didn't. Does it have the, a soundtrack? The, the soundtrack was like the guy was uncredited, and well, there's lots of references. There's they're all musical kind of in like jokes, right? Cole Porter. Yeah, there's. Well, there's there's like some stuff from Warner Brothers cartoons. There's a little bit of references. I think there's something, yeah, some like Carl Stalling. So the one thing I read is that there's no non-diegetic music. So there's diegetic music, which is music which is part of the scene, and then there's non-diegetic music, which is soundtrack. And except for the opening credits and the ending credits, there's no music that's not in the scene. So like uh-huh. anytime you hear music. Like the elevator, right? Elevator music happens. Huh. It's what the characters are hearing, or yeah. it's within yeah. the world of right. the movie. Yeah, okay. so yeah, that's huh. fancy film school terms, diegetic and non-diegetic. So that, huh. yeah, and I, I watched it this time, and it's true. Because well, she sings she in sings the middle. She sings live. Yeah. yeah. I heard that he Bogdanovich made her sing live because he wanted, when she was moving around, to seem real. Yeah. Like, you know how it sounds, you can yeah. kind of tell when people are lip syncing when they start doing some physical things and yeah yeah the audio is perfect and i'm sure by then she was pretty uptight about performance well no but she performed live and everything like that but i, I feel like she's one of those per- perfection i think at yeah, least from what i've heard about recording control yeah her, her, how she sounded yeah very specific about getting something to sound right so to have her not be able to control the the music <laughs> pre-record it yeah that would be a big big ask that's good yeah, I had some stats here. Well, one's a little weird. Bogdanovich is Serbo-Croatian, and that's allegedly the accent of the oh. of the very weird dude. Kenneth Mars. Yeah. Hugh. And I had brunch with a Serbo-Croatian last Sunday. So oh, yeah? I don't know if there's any... Wow. I don't know if there's a, a connection there. First American film to credit stunt people in the credits. There were a lot of stunts in this film. Yeah, yeah they, they really went all out. And the first British film to credit stunt people, and it was Moonraker. Moonraker, really? Wow, <laughs> yeah. that was took them a long time. Yeah, 1979 versus when this film was made. This is Babs's fifth film. She was four years into her career at this point. Yentl was 11 years away, and her appearance on Miami Vice was 16 years away. <laughs> so, so basically her career is B-Y- A-Y, before Yentl, after Yentl? Before Yentl, yeah. yeah. And okay. after Yentl was Miami Vice, before Yentl was What's Up Doc. And this, I was surprised that this was pretty much Madeline Kahn's first movie, kind of, or it's introducing Madeline Kahn. That, yeah. She, the more I watch this film, the more she's my favorite part of the film. It's mm-hmm. like amazing that it's her first film. There's a story that Mel Brooks was on the set to recruit people. That's why she's in Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, and then um, what's his name? The guy who plays the judge. Oh yeah, Liam. Yeah, yeah they're all the he's same. He's in uh, Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I think some, one other person is in Mel Brooks films. Maybe not, but yeah, he definitely saw her in this and was yeah like oh I got to get her in my movies. The fact that like and if you listen to. <laughs> Like half of her acting is making noises. She's not actually saying words. It's like so many times she's she goes, ah, or mm, mm, or or then is yelling. Yeah, like like the range. It's just like you could watch just her performance in this film. It's amazing. She's good and she's in Paper Moon and she's good. She just does regular kind of acting stuff in this film though. It's like where you can see how she could be a comedian also and not just an actress, right, or an actor, right? She's mm-hmm. she's definitely. Yeah, oh, it's just amazing. Like every time I see her, I just start laughing because the faces she, like the way she, her expressions, her reactions or lack of reaction or just, yeah, just the way she, <laughs> her repulsion. Yeah, oh, it's it's all amazing. She did also remind me of the fiance in, in Bringing Up Baby. She did a good job of sort of, but she was, she was impressively commanding of her performance being her first film. You'd think yeah. you would be scared being around all those stars and she really kind of blew him off the screen, really. Yeah, yeah, amazing. This was Ryan O'Neill's seventh film. He was one year away from making Paper Moon, three years away from making Barry Lyndon, and nine years away from making So Fine, (laughs) which was the first sex scene I had ever seen in the Mm -hmm. movie theater. I've never seen that. That's the movie about the genes that have exposed buttocks, right? He he ripped, yeah, so he was having an affair with a woman who was married to Richard Keel. Jaws from Moonraker. Best known Is he as in Moonraker? Jaws in the film, Spawn films, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Moonraker, right. Okay, that's his second. There's that Moonraker connection again. He was also in Cannibal Run 2. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Ryan O'Neill or Richard Keel? Richard, 
Richard Keel. Richard Keel was okay. in Cannibal Run too. So was, was actually was uh, Ryan O'Neill in any of the Cannonball or no? But uh, Roger Moore was Roger Moore as yeah. Roger Moore or as James Bond. I can't remember. He yeah, was probably not as James Bond. Ryan O'Neill yeah. was never in a. He was okay. So I saw Nickelodeon. Both Ryan O'Neill and Burt Reynolds are in Nickelodeon. Anyways, go on. And Peter Bogdanovich directed that film. Anyways, interesting. Go on. No, that's all I had. I was just trying to draw a connection between Moonraker and Moonraker. And, <laughs> yeah. So Ryan O'Neill. We actually saw Ryan O'Neill in person once, Jim. He came to our, one of our shows. Yeah, but I was. I too, think he left before we played. Yeah, though. he just was, was there for the opening band. How many years after So Fine was that? It was the Zero Effect, which is a great movie. Have you ever seen it? No. It was him and Ben Stiller were at the show, and it stars Bill Pullman. If I got the right Bill as kind of like a Sherlock Holmes like character, it's one of the director's sons directed it. Is it Jake Kasdan or is it the other? <laughs> Other director's son directed it. They were in Portland making this movie, yeah. and the the opening band summer, knew them. Summer Camp, or yeah, was Summer Camp were on Madonna's label, right? So they had some connection. We were that's what we were figuring. It's like oh, it's some kind of Warner Brothers. They knew movie. Or, they connection with some of the people, promo people, are so like, oh, our, one of our bands is in town and these guys and somehow i don't know we were just speculating oh that's so, why they sh- these movie stars showed up and do you know what night that was i feel like that was also the night that ellen episode of ellen where she came yeah. out yeah, wasn't it it was crazy night <laughs> so we're playing a show ryan o'neill and ben stiller are there they leave before we go i spend the whole time before the show freaking out and thinking should i go talk to ryan o'neill this is one of my biggest regrets in my life you should talk to him about the driver should i talk to him about the driver should i talk to him about what's up doc because what's up doc i love i love the driver ryan o'neill i t- i don't know what it is it's and so and barry linden barry linden again he is He's not a good actor. I don't think he's a good actor, but there's some, somehow, and he's good in Paper Moon too. I guess he is a good actor. He was a good actor until he got fried on whatever he got fried on. He's even good in this movie Zero Effect. I feel like Tatum O'Neill blew him off the screen in Paper Moon. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but Ryan O'Neill in so the driver. So you didn't go talk to him? No, I didn't. I should have. I, that's one of my regrets. Did they regrets. stay for your performance? No, they did not stay for our show. Oh. They were gone, long gone. <laughs> <laughs> I but think he was, they stayed for yeah, the opening I, act. Right? Ryan, Ryan O'Neill was dancing, though, to, oh, yeah, to summer camp. He was in the front with some... And I was going to say, he must have been pretty old by that time, but he's probably like our... He was our age. At that, <laughs> he was, he was like t- 10 years younger than us we at now. the time. Yeah. That's one thing I looked up. The, the guy, Liam Dunn, who played the judge in this film, plays the priest and the reverend in uh, Blazing Saddles. <laughs> he died when he was 59. He was 56... When this movie, when oh What's Up Doc was made. So oh that, that character oh is closer in our current age than Barbara Streisand, you know, was at that time. Like Barbara Streisand's like, what, 20 something uh. in the film? We're like as almost as old as the guy playing the old judge. Yeah, we're identifying <laughs> with the judge character. <laughs> but he, that, that's, that, he got cast all the time because he looked older than he he was. That's the, he had that Judd Hirsch effect. <laughs> Judd, yeah. Like Judd Hirsch has looked the same for 50 years. Well, and what's his name? Will, Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley yeah. has always looked old. So my thoughts about Ryan O'Neill are maybe he's kind of that. Is He's such, in some ways, so inert in a lot of the films. His delivery, his expression. Like at the end of this film, he smiles. You see him like when when they're talking in the airport. He actually smiles like a person, but the rest of the film, like he doesn't laugh. He, there's very little emotion. He's a him. mannequin for the yeah. film. Which Barry is... Lyndon definitely like. I haven't watched it in a while, and I love Barry Lyndon, but he feels like a placeholder in that film. And that oh, his character is supposed to be that, and that's why people I think hate Barry Lyndon maybe. But I I love it because of how sterile. Yeah, that film is so slow and. Not sterile, but like, like clean. <laughs> it's a weird film. If you watch Barry Lyndon, I loved it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. It's There's something about film. it though. It's it's cold. It's a cold film in a weird way, even though it's so warm, you know, visually, cinematically, right? But it's kind of directed, right? It's there's control. You see the control in the film. The film is completely under control, right? And so I think that's where Ryan O'Neill thrives. And then the driver, we've. The driver, he he says, what what is it? He says seventy words in the whole film. Right. I mean, really, he's he's incredibly a nerd in that film, and it's a great film. 
right? He does a great job. I mean, maybe that is a, you know, Hitchcock felt like actors were cattle. Of course. The thing is Hitchcock, yeah. He used Jimmy Stewart and yeah. Cary Grant. I mean, he used great actors. And Cary Grant in Bringing a Baby, essentially trying to do the same thing, be a, a bookish nerd, but did it so incredibly better than Ryan O'Neill <laughs> in this film. Um, <laughs> some actors can transform themselves into what the character should be. Yeah. And some people just are what the director wants to see yeah. on screen. I think Ryan O'Neill is a good example of that. I've never seen Love Story, so I don't know. That's the thing is he was a big star that wanted to work with great directors, and it was right at the time when the great directors, first off, wanted to have big hit films, right? And then they also needed a star to make their next film, right? So it wasn't like Stanley Kubrick. I think it was starting to become a hard sell. Right. To work with him or to get... No, just kind of like, well, no. Also, it's like, oh, you can't just make a Stanley Kubrick film. You have to have a star, right? Even though that's not really true, but it's kind of like with Bogdanovich too. It's like they needed, like to make the next jump as a director at that time into like big time director, right? Like their heroes. So I think they needed to work with stars. They couldn't just be famous because they were directors because people still didn't believe in that idea in the early 70s, even though that's, that's the way we look at it back now, right? It's like, oh, everybody talks about Brian De Palma and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Peter Bogdanovich and all the... Uh, well, Reservoir Dogs got made because of Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Right. And Ryan Gosling does a lot of that. Now he'll do indie films. There's that one director where he does all those like Neon Bible and now I'm getting things mixed up. Oh. Neon Demon, I think is one of them. And and then he does a film that's a lot like The Driver. I think it even has a title Oh, you're talking about, yeah, Drive. You're talking about the, the he's the Swedish guy or is he a German guy? Yeah, yeah, Drive. Yeah, Ryan, uh, not Ryan, or yeah, Ryan Gosling. But yeah, so those films I think get more attention because he's in them. I think, you know, so maybe uh, yeah, it's uh, Ryan O'Neill maybe does the same thing. It was that, that same model. It was kind of like, oh, these, this, these big stars wanted to work with these cool directors, right? And so it was that era of that thing happening. And so Ryan O'Neill was that guy for a while. He was a huge box office star. And then, <laughs> yeah, he did these films. And so they, it worked for a while. But right. then it was like Ryan O'Neill's star fell. The movies weren't good. Bogdanovich, yeah, kept doing movies with Ryan O'Neill, but they stopped working, right? They stopped. Because he got rid of his wife. <laughs> I think so. I, well, yeah. I, I believe, I, I don't know, there's something to be said for no, that. that. I, see, I believe in that theory. Yeah. The uh, references to, I started writing them down, bringing a baby, he initially tells her to be quiet. And he's like, I just need you to be quiet. Cary Grant says that. He says, in the, Ryan O'Neill says in the beginning and the end of the film, Cary Grant does that as well. The torn jacket, of course, the almost kiss scene where she kind of leans in for it and oh, right, doesn't yeah. give it to her. Yeah. Her hanging off the ledge that happens oh, yeah. at the very end of bringing a baby. And That's true. Cary Grant's actually was was a trapeze artist, so you hmm. he does some masterful... Actually, that was the interesting <laughs> thing about both those films is there's clearly scenes where Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant are doing stunts. He's riding around in yeah. a car that she's driving, similar to them riding around on the bicycle. Mm-hmm. In this film, I was surprised at how the actors were doing things that were pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. What do I have here? Oh, the singing together happens in both. In Bringing Up Baby, it's that song, something, dun, 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 baby, love, baby. Yeah. yeah. And then jumping on the bike, like jumping on the car. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it, there's just a lot of, I mean, a lot of nods to Bringing Up Baby. Buck Henry wrote this film, actually speaking of the old Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So the and Catch-22, yeah. which the guy... Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton. Yeah, so the the Buck Henry thing, Buck Henry, yeah, wrote the script for the film of Catch-22. Austin Pendleton is Orson Welles' son-in-law in in, in Catch-22. So there's the Orson Welles-Peter Bogdanovich connection. So Peter Bogdanovich, I think Peter Bogdanovich was hanging around that shoot probably. Yeah. I I feel like... Hearing about that, yeah. yeah. They were like in Mexico, right? Yeah. They they had all the planes and stuff, and they were down in Mexico and for months and people were yeah. hanging out yeah i remember hearing so austin, austin pendleton so yeah austin pendleton's a person he's to me he's like the equivalent of bud court and so bud court who was oh, in yeah. mash and then was in uh harold and Maud, and then just like you don't see him again he's like in a bunch of 70s movies and then disappears austin pendleton was the same same kind of way he austin pendleton i looked up though is in this film simon which with uh it's alan arkins i think it's only directing or no, Marshall Brickman. Oh, I can't I've remember. Seen Simon. The Simon. Little Brothers brought 
of Simon yeah. over for yeah. us to watch. With the, the, yeah, so Austin Pendleton's in that. He's also the assassin in the Muppet movie. <laughs> and then he shows up in Searching for Bobby Fischer. But it's like, I, I loved this film, What's Up Doc? And it's like, I, when I was young, I started you know, recognizing actors and everything like that. And, and it was like, what happened to, you'd wonder, what happened to Austin Pendleton? It's like, what? Is that the guy that became Jason Schwartzman? <laughs> yeah, he, he does yeah. seem, yeah, Schwartzman-like. And so, yeah, and Austin Pendleton being from Catch-22. And he's great in this film, that, that character. It, and that's what it is. That's what's great about the film. And what harkens back to those 30s screwball comedies is, is the, the character actors. Wow. But also, not just, not just Buck Henry. So Buck Henry, a lot of times, I think, would come in and would be the script doctor. And so I think, yeah, the, it definitely... That's what it sounded like. This was written... He came in, yeah, last... Yeah, because it was written um, by two other guys. Yeah, David Sorry. Newman and Robert Benton. So David Newman and Robert Benton wrote Bonnie and Clyde, wrote Superman, the Superman with Christopher Reeve, and then Robert Benton was the guy. The, this this is a great '70s movie with uh, uh, called The Late Show with Lily Tomlin and uh, Oh, I think I've seen that movie. Uh, oh. Art Carney. So when there was that Art Carney Renaissance in the '70s, he the, that film the Carney Harry Harry and Tonto Harry and Tonto, and then The Late Show which Robert Benton directed, and Robert Benton did Kramer versus Kramer, too. Well, this film was originally written for Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so yeah, there's that book, yeah, that reading about that. And allegedly before Bogdanovich was on, and then when Bogdanovich took it over, I think that's when he probably rewrote the script with Buck Henry to make Babs the character that Gould was going to play. I, I read something that said Gould showed up on the set and was very aloof or something, or was like... Crazy, yeah. like, yeah... And so this is the thing is, so we're going to watch one of my other recommended films is directed by Anthony Harvey, who was the director on that project with Elliot Gould, who was married to Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Yeah. His ex, his ex-wife took the role at that point. Right. But I've also, like Bogdanovich said, oh, the only thing we took from that book, because I, I read what the book it's supposed to be based on. It sounds really dark. So it's like, I don't see how this could be this movie. And he said the only thing they took from it was is that the main character in the Elliot Gould movie was based on had been to a lot of different universities. <laughs> it was like, oh, oh, we took that idea from it. <laughs> and basically there's nothing else in the film about that. I thought you were going to say the bag switch, because the bag switch no. doesn't have an a- analog to bringing a baby. Baby, but it's it's from another... It, yeah, there are other movies like that, and I'm trying to think. Yeah, and that's the thing, is it's not just bringing a baby. It's it's bringing a baby elements, but then there's all other kind of Howard Hawks and Preston Sturgis kind of things. That's the thing, is I like His Girl Friday better, like with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. I haven't seen it in a while. That is... So, bringing a baby's great. I like it. That maybe is the difference with me, right? Is I prefer a more Rosalind Russell character than the Catherine Hepburn character, Interesting. right? So the Rosalind Russell character is, it's it's basically the front page, but with a female lead. So Rosalind Russell, and the interplay between Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant is much more interesting, but also Cary Grant is playing more of a Cary Grant character. He's not playing like a professor, scientist guy. He's playing a, a reporter. I'll watch it with my wife, and she'll then tell me how... She can analyze. ...how that led to Rose. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> can analyze that there was only one golden globe nomination that was the only award i could get out of this film and they didn't even win it but it was for madeline khan for most promising newcomer (laughs) that was it no awards for this film at all yeah so this is the thing though is like there's the rom-com format right yeah which is which this was a rom-com but then there's also action right so like there's a huge amount of stunts rom-coms have stunts though sometimes yeah to have a film that combines all those things and it is talky and is is crazy, but it's not. No one gets shot in the head, right? So Tarantino films. Sure. This is what my my son said is his perspective on Tarantino films is like, oh yeah, it's a bunch of talking, and then everyone gets killed, right? You know that's that's what it is. It's like two hours of talking and then a bloodbath. This film is lots of talking. Lots of so gunplay. Lots of gunplay. Yeah, there are guns. That's true. There is there's guns and there's there's car accidents and everything like that. But it's all kind of fun. I, I, I just I when what I'm wondering is is why there aren't more movies like that now. And is it because it's just that people don't want that? Well we should look. I bet you there are. We should yeah. we should look and see if we can find them. So should this film be lost? I think we're saying no. I'm right? saying no. You guys can say whatever you want. Jim, I, what were your thoughts? Do you like no, this film? It was great. Yeah. I, it been years since I saw it, like, as a kid, and it was very enjoyable, and it was great. And uh, I haven't forced you to watch it since no, then. No, yeah. I don't. I haven't seen it in 20, yeah, years. I but I, I knew you liked it. I remember oh. you liking it a lot. But 
I'm a big Babs fan, so I was I was pro. <laughs> Should this film be found? I think we're saying well, that's a, that's the question you're posing, Rick. Is would people respond positively to this film nowadays? I just don't know. Am I a man out of time? Right? <laughs> you know, I I like it, but but it is that question it's it's this it's different than this question we had about like wicker man which is like hey kids you should watch this film and then they go ooh uncle rick's a little weird he recommended this creepy movie to us and we don't want to talk to him anymore whereas this is the opposite it's kind of like this old dude recommended this movie with these people talking and car crashes and it was really but if i showed my son this film he would love it like yeah. if i forced him to watch it he would just like you do with your kids they loved yeah. it right yeah. I mean, Midsummer is arguably just a ripoff. I haven't seen it yet, but my brother-in-law says it's a, you're going to hate it because it's a huge ripoff of The Wicker Man. Wicker Man, yeah. So The Wicker Man's come back. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, in, I mean, they did the remake, but that doesn't really count. I didn't see the remake of that, by the way. But Midsummer, I, is, I think, is rehashing. because so that's what I'm thinking. There's There might be a film out today or around this time, and it was probably a rom-com that would be comparable to this film. Should this film be rewound, would you watch this film again? Jim. Oh, yeah. I would watch it again immediately just to track the uh, baggage, the bags, to see really forensically follow. We didn't do the three-card kind of Monty audit. We should totally do the three-card yeah. Monty audit on this film. You, you were doing... You were doing very well in tracking the bags. Okay, that's that. Yeah, as a first-time viewer, yeah, yeah, you were doing pretty good. Better than I, I was lost I'm track. I'm good at when you go to the ballpark and they have the three ball caps and they put the baseball <laughs> under one of them and then they kind of mix it up on yeah. them. I'm pretty good at They're going to say one. like when the, the pitcher like secretly gives the, the first baseman the ball. Don't they, they oh, don't, I they love that let, little trick. They don't, trick. Let, they don't do, do that too often, but I love that trick. That's like people who don't like sports like love those kind of tricks. And that's what I always, like as a play, person who didn't like sports, playground, but has converted. Yeah, yeah, I love those kind of tricks, and I am pretty good at, at guessing whether or not ketchup, mustard, or relish is going to win the race. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention that Laszlo Kovacs was the mm-hmm. cinematographer on this movie, and he, speaking of yeah, like Ryan O'Neill, not talking to Ryan O'Neill, you know, coming to our show and. Last Loco, I, I went to see uh, Easy Rider at the film center down in Chicago like 15 years ago or something. It was like a new print, and Laszlo Kovacs was there to introduce it and talk. And there's about 40 people there, 50 people, <laughs> at, you know, down at the Siskel Film Center. And, and he, he went up and talked, and then then there's like just for a little bit, and then said, and then I was like, okay, let's watch the movie. And then he came walking down, and then it was like him and the guy who, who worked at the at the film center was like oh here these are the best seats and he, they came down my aisle and he, Laszlo sat right next to me did you talk to him I or did you chicken I, out like he was your one brother seat, one seat away from him yeah and I didn't say anything to him but he was a, a, a seat away and I was like so easy rider five I, easy I don't pieces know. yeah he, he, he directed all those or he, he he was the cinematographer for those but I, yeah I didn't I couldn't Close think of anything counters. couldn't think of anything to say I was just yeah, like but like, I want you know he enjoyed I'm trying to think what if his response. Oh, I was trying to see, like, if uh, you didn't hand him your vape pen. <laughs> no. they, fifteen years ago. Yeah, this man. was at least fifteen years ago. Pre-vape. <laughs> but oh, oh, it was the PB. part. The part in uh, Easy Rider when you know, like, something like he throws away his watch. You know, really symbolic, and it's kind of cheesy, and people ever kind of kind of laugh. You know, it was like trying to gauge his response when some of the stuff that doesn't hold up or people find very corny now, or and it was like. He, I don't think he cares. He probably didn't it was, like, it's like, it's not him. He was just... The f- he's like the focus puller yeah. fucked up in that scene. <laughs> yeah. Sitting there criticizing him. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't remember any re- reactions, but it was cool to sit sort of next to him for that movie. Awesome. I had a question. Do you think Foul Play could have been influenced by this film? With Chevy Chase and... Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn. And Barry, Barry Manilow. <laughs> I cannot remember Foul Play. I remember the poster. Yeah. I think Springtime in New England. Or no, Ready to Take a Chance Again was the theme song by Barry Manilow. <laughs> I'm a big Barry Manilow fan. I mean, Foul Play, it feels like that would be, uh, you know, another screwball comedy. I think that was definitely where they were trying to go with... Uh, oh, with action. And there was, yeah. there was real stakes there. I mean, this one, it didn't feel like there was real stakes. Yeah. Just like Bringing Up Baby, it didn't feel like anybody was going to die. But Foul Play, there was uh, the albino character who definitely was going to kill them. I'm going to have to watch Fall Play. <laughs> you have to again. watch Fall Play. I feel like that, that's that got to be at least 30 years ago that I saw that. I mean, that must have been a 70s film, so 10 years after. It would have been I, one I, of his first, Chevy Chase's first I think there's films. A, I think there's a nod to 
just the San Francisco as a as a character. Mm, yeah. Thing is definitely there in foul play. I noticed Madeline Kahn was not long, probably the year after this, or was in also in the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler. Wow. Did you see that? <laughs> was, so read, who was, read that book. I don't know if I, I guess I yeah, saw the movie was, uh, version, but Anne that was a Bancroft? great book. Did you ever read that book? Oh, that's a great book. She was. You've she, never read the book? <laughs> what are you guys talking about? <laughs> I thought that's everybody a common read that. book. Yeah, everybody read it. I thought that was, was like a Jim. That was one of Jim's. Nope. Oh, that was a huge book. The that movie, though, was Anne Bancroft in that? Because that would be the Mel Brooks connection. What's her name? Uh, Swedish oh, actress. Oh, that's right. Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, is that's right. Oh. Oh, is the main, I is, is Mrs. I think she's yeah. Mrs. Basley okay, and Frank not, Weiler. Yeah, it's not uh, not Aunt Bancroft. Oh wow! Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it.